0: So um, we're in a series here called What About, and we're asking the question because so many of us have gone through, and the language is different for everybody, some people say a deconstruction, some people say an unraveling, some people say a faith shift, some people just use profanity, Um, it depends on what your experience has been. Um, But for lots of us, we've gone through these shifts, and we're asking the question, like, okay, I understand that I've changed my perspective, I've changed my opinion, I've changed my belief, my interpretation, but what about all this other stuff? Like, what do we do with it now? Because if if we're somehow trying to remain within the Christian stream, right, we call ourselves at Grace Point Progressive Christians then there's all this stuff out there that we have to begin to figure out how we relate to it, respond to it. And so we began talking by talking about the Bible. Last week we talked about original sin and how it's actually not in the Bible. And what I've noticed for myself is that when you pull, or if you imagine it's a big brick wall, if you, original sin is sort of the piece holding so much of this theology together, this belief that we're all just terribly bad because somebody made a decision to eat fruit while naked in a garden a long time ago that you pull that out and say, gosh, maybe that's actually not the story of the Bible. If you missed that last week, I'm not going to re-preach it. I just encourage you to go listen to it. But if you pull that out, then it really leads to a lot more what about questions. Like, what about salvation? And that's what I want to talk about today. Um, Because for lots and lots and lots of us, the whole purpose of salvation has something to do with the fact that we're sinful, terrible people. We were born that way, and we need to be rescued somehow. So actually, for me, growing up, the big question, the question that would be asked every time church was together, or if you were around other Christians, uh, if you weren't one, or they didn't know you weren't one, the question would be is, are you saved? How many of you have ever been asked that question before? Are you saved? How many of you have ever asked somebody that question before? yeah. It's pretty central to Christian language. It's pretty central to how many of us grew up thinking about faith. And so today I want to talk about what does it actually mean to be saved? What, what is it we're actually talking about when that question gets asked? Um, and by the way, it's always asked in the past tense, isn't it? Are you saved? Like it happened in the past and now you've moved on? And so I want to talk about all of that, because for many of us, this primary lens we've understood Christianity through is it's about salvation. And the primary lens we've understood salvation through is the lens of forgiveness and the afterlife. I think for many of us, maybe even most of us, if you grew up in a religious a Christian context, specifically the kind, like a conservative Christian context, the whole point of salvation was getting forgiven so that you could go to heaven when you die. There's actually a billboard on I-65 around Millersville, north of Nashville. And on that billboard, it says, Heaven or Hell? You decide, or something like that. It's very aggressive. Um, And it's a big decision to make while you're driving on the interstate. Would you agree? (laughs) Like, it seems like you may want to give a little bit more time to that conversation. Um, But right there it is. Heaven or hell, the whole point of this, the whole point of this is making a choice to get forgiven so that your afterlife experience is optimal. And the problem with those two emphasis, forgiveness and the afterlife, is that it really turns everything into sort of a self-centered human experience, doesn't it? When the whole point is getting my sin forgiven, when the whole point is me going to heaven when I die, what that ultimately does is it creates this sort of thing in my life where everything that exists exists for me, and everything that happens 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 for me or because of me, and it sort of shifts my focus from the rest of the world, like there are other people on this planet, and it kind of just makes it about me. And the problem with seeing it through this lens also is that God kind of has to be convinced to forgive us, right? Like God has to be convinced somehow, whether that's through saying the right words in the right prayer, or when you baptize someone, you get the wrong words and God's like, sorry, you said we instead of I, and now all of those people aren't forgiven anymore. And talk about having to convince God to forgive us. For most of us, for me, growing up, the cross, Jesus' death, which we're going to talk about next week, was all about convincing God to forgive us. Because God couldn't just forgive us, God had to require a sacrifice to be not just a sacrifice, an innocent sacrifice, so that's how the story is told. God required an innocent sacrifice to forgive all human beings can you imagine if one of my kids did something they shouldn't have and they come up and ask me for forgiveness and I'm like, okay, but you got to kill something first. Would you not call someone? Like, who, who do you call when it's God doing the requiring? And so I, I just think we have to also understand that it creates a transactional problem. Salvation really just becomes about a transaction. I said the prayer, I did this thing, God owes me salvation. I believe the right doctrines, I said the sinner's prayer, now God owes me salvation. It really just turns it into a transaction. Another problem is the afterlife. How many of you know everything there is to know about the afterlife, like is there one? No, and how many of you are trying to put that off as long as possible? Right, and the afterlife? which is for so many people, the whole driving factor behind being religious, behind being Christian, is guaranteeing your afterlife experience. The, the truth is the afterlife isn't really that big of a deal in the Bible. It's not talked about very much. And that's because in Jesus' day, belief in an afterlife was a brand new thing in the Jewish tradition. They picked it up during exile, which means that up until then, throughout almost all of the Hebrew scriptures, they don't have a belief in an afterlife. There is no going to heaven when you die. When you die, you go to this place called Sheol, which just means the grave, which is sort of like similar to Hades, I guess, in, in Greek, but, but still different. Like, you, it's just, you're not walking around doing a thing. It's just, you, you go to Hades. I mean, I'm sorry, you go to Sheol. That's just where you go. There's no afterlife, there's no personal afterlife experience. And so, in Jesus' day, a majority of people in, in um, the Jewish faith, We're coming around to this idea. There were some who weren't. A group called the Sadducees were totally out on the experience. They they did not believe in an afterlife. And so if it's brand new around the time of Jesus, it seems like then maybe we've read it back into the rest of the Bible. Does that make sense? Like we we see something here and then we have confirmation bias. Every time it says this word, it's talking about that. When really up until the time of Jesus, just a little before, a hundred or so years before, they just didn't have a big belief In the afterlife. And of course, when the afterlife is the focus, it makes everything about leaving this world. I grew up singing, I'll fly away, right? And the whole point was getting out of here. And if the whole point is getting out of here, then you really don't care what happens here, right? It's kind of, uh, it's kind of a brilliant idea from the powers that be that co-opted Christianity, the Roman Empire, and, and Constantine in the 4th century. It's really kind of a brilliant plan because they were essentially able to say, Hey, you all just take your pie in the sky when you die, and we'll run the world how we see fit. And when that's your focus, injustice around you doesn't really matter because fi- we're all going to heaven someday. Well, not all of us. That's the other part. But some of us are going to heaven someday, and God's going to fix it all in the by and by, right? And all around us, the world could be crumbling and is crumbling. The pain and suffering around us is real. And so many people have chosen to check out because it's really just about where they go when they die. That promise of heaven and threat of hell is sort of the carrot that they hang out in front of us to keep us moving along. I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. I don't think that's what the Bible's talking about because it's actually possible to have all your beliefs lined up, to be doing all of the right things, to have said the right prayer, to have used the right language and and have all those boxes checked and still not be a different person. It's possible to be able to regurgitate doctrinal positions without being transformed. I love this quote from Marcus Borg. He said, You can believe all the right things and still be in bondage. You can believe all the right things and be miserable. You can believe all the right things and still be relatively unchanged. Believing a set of claims to be true has very little transforming power. And it seems to me that what the writers of the Bible, what Jesus is getting at, is transformation. By the way, what did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done where? on earth as it is in heaven. Could it be that all those Christians who've been waiting to be vacuumed up, they would, like, would meet God coming down while they're going up because the action's here? Like this is what it's all been about? And it's not just been about me and you, it's been about everything. Everything that exists being transformed. And not just in some sort of religious way, but actually the world being changed, unjust systems being changed. People who are harming and abusing others experiencing change. The systems that perpetuate those people harming and abusing one another would be changed. And that's for me what salvation is talking about. Salvation is talking about a transformation of everything and everyone. And it's interesting that the words save and salvation in the Bible, if you translate them, they have nothing to do with an afterlife or going to heaven you die. They actually mean things like deliverance liberation, rescue from trouble. And all of us, especially in the Hebrew Bible, all of those words are pointing to this life. Liberation in this life. Deliverance in this life. Rescue in this life. Things being different, transformed and changed in this life. So what does it mean to be saved? I guess it depends on what your problem is. And this is the other thing. If we assume salvation is always about forgiveness... But what if somebody's problem is that they're hungry and thirsty? And by the way, do you see how this is, like, lots and lots of people would say, well, you won't be hungry and thirsty in heaven. When actually salvation for a hungry and thirsty person looks like real food and real drink. Right? Whatever salvation is, it depends on what you need in that moment. And so I want to run through a few other ways of seeing salvation, not just sort of as forgiveness, although there, that's, there, there is something to that, right? Salvation does involve a certain amount of, whether that's interpersonal or what, like, yes, of course, there's room for that. but that's the dominant image, and that's actually not the dominant image in the tradition. And so I want to begin and try to keep two things going in your mind at the same time. One is, yes, this can be about me and my life. But also, this isn't just about me and my life. And it's definitely not about what happens to me after my life. It's about something here, concrete, real in this world. So here are a few meanings of salvation. One, and this is the primary meaning in the Hebrew Bible. If you begin in the book of Genesis and you read it, you'll suddenly come to a book called Exodus. And this is where salvation sort of as an idea enters the tradition. And let's begin with this. Salvation is, a, is liberation. Salvation is about liberation. The primary image for salvation in the Hebrew scriptures, in all of the Bible really, is this idea of the Exodus that the Israelites were enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt and they were suffering and toiling and God heard the cry of the enslaved Israelites. Now this is in human history, a revolutionary idea because in human history, do you know who the gods conveniently supported? The people in power, the people who ran the show Because after all, how did Pharaoh get Pharaoh's job? The gods put him there. And if you don't respect Pharaoh, and if you have a problem with Pharaoh, and you don't like what Pharaoh does, ultimately you have a problem with God. Aren't you glad we left this behind in human history? So, So Pharaoh is the powerful one, and the gods support those in power. And along comes this tradition that says, no, 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 this God doesn't support those in power. This God supports those who are being oppressed by those in power. And so this God raises up a leader, a prophet named Moses who pulls together a few people and they go to Egypt and they lead a liberation movement. They go to Pharaoh and say, it's not right for you to oppress the Hebrews. God's going to deliver them out of oppression. That's the primary meaning of salvation in the Bible. It's liberation. It's being set free. And I can think of lots and lots of ways that, that could apply to our own lives, right? This own, our own lives, being liberated, being set free from opinions and attitudes and behaviors. But also, I, I think when we jump to that, we forget like there's actual liberative work that needs to happen in the world we're living in right now. People are being oppressed in the world we're living in right now. And so it's, it's great if I get my like metaphorical liberation salvation thing going on, but if it actually isn't spilling over into the world and how we're running it and how we're carving it up, if it isn't spilling into the world so that people who work 40 hours a week can feed their family, so that people don't have to like go bankrupt to get medical care, like if we're not actually doing those sorts of things, if we're still living in a world where you, can, uh, you get treated one way depending on the color of your skin and you get treated another way depending on the color of your skin by those in power, then we have liberative work to do in the world. And if my own sort of personal liberation doesn't lead me to join the act of liberation for all of God's children, then I'm really just dealing with doctrines and dogmas. I'm not actually dealing with salvation. Does that make sense? Because salvation isn't just about my liberation. Our liberation, collectively, it's all bound up together. And salvation came to the enslaved Hebrews when they were led together in community out of Egypt. And by the way, when the Hebrews left Egypt, it wasn't just the Hebrews who left. There's, it's, it, there's it's this great word in Hebrew, Erev Rab, and it sort of means like this, like a ragtag group, like people just joined up. People who were looking for freedom joined up with them on their freedom march. Because liberation is best experienced in community. When we're transforming the world and finding liberation together, Of course it's personal, right? Of course it's about my life, but it's also about politics. It's about politics, because politics is about how the world gets run. It's about us, not just me, not just you. It's about us, and it has all sorts of... This is why when people tell preachers, don't talk about politics, then we have nothing left to say, right? Because if you thumb through the pages of the Bible really quickly, you're going to understand. This is full of, the Exodus was a political event. Right? You thumb through the pages of the Bible, you find out, oh, this is economic. This is about economic justice. And you can't have true liberation in a world where there's political injustice and economic injustice, especially when that's all being supported by uh, a religion that's unjust. And so, salvation is a kind of liberation. Yes, it's about being set free. It's about me being set free and you being set free. But it's not just about us, it's about setting the world free. Second, salvation is about a return from exile. The other dominant theme in the Hebrew scriptures one is the Exodus, another dominant theme is the return from exile. So, in the 500s BCE, the uh, people of Judah were taken into exile. They were defeated by the Babylonians, and they were taken into exile. And what exile meant is that the best of the best, the wealthy and the powerful, uh, would be taken from their land and taken somewhere else, in this case Babylon. And they would leave sort of people who were no threat to them. right? If Maybe the poor, the sick. They would leave some people behind to take care of the land. Sometimes they'd bring other people in. But the reality is they're taking them from their home and they're placing them somewhere else and it's called exile. One of the longings uh, that's expressed in the Psalms is to come back home from exile. How many of you have ever heard the Psalm that begins like this? By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept. There on the poplars we hung our harps because our captors asked us for songs of joy. They asked us to sing the songs of our temple and of our religion back home. How can we sing God's songs in another place. It's that sense of exile, that sense of estrangement. And the longing is to come home. The longing is to return. We talked last week about the chief human problem is not that we were born separated from God, that actually maybe our biggest problem is that we're told we're separated from God, that we enter this world inherently united with God, and yet there's also in us a sense of estrangement, a sense that we've somehow wandered far and were gone. And yet, in the Garden of Eden story we looked at last week, where, does God, where is God when all that estrangement is going on, when they're hiding from God, when they're, when they're afraid that God uh, is going to see them naked? Where is God? God shows up anyway, right? The, the walk is still on. God is showing up to be with people anyway. And yet it was the sense of estrangement that pushed them into hiding. And salvation is kind of coming home from that. As we said last week, it's coming home and realizing that home went with you the whole time. That the estrangement wasn't on God's side, it was on ours. That it was the belief that God could not be near us that was the problem. It's interesting that the word repent, um, which is, I mean, how many of you get a little queasy when you hear that word? Because it's usually being screamed at you by somebody holding a really mean sign, isn't it? like, repent, well, it seems like you're so nice, why wouldn't we wanna be a part of that, All right. But the word repent, actually, it's one of those words, it's one of those religious words that actually needs to be reclaimed, or, or at least the meaning of it needs to be reclaimed, because the word repent actually doesn't mean to feel sorry, it doesn't mean to feel guilty, it doesn't mean to feel ashamed. The word repent simply means to change your mind. To return. It's this image you were walking one way and you turned around and now you're coming back from the way you walked. It's this idea that I have better information and now I'm going to change my mind and make a better decision. One of the great stories in the Bible where this happens is in the story of Zacchaeus. How many grew up singing the song about Zacchaeus? The, yeah. We little man. Yeah, Louis Apparently he was Irish. Um, <laughs> Which is, uh, which, is, which is unknown to most biblical scholars. Um, but Zacchaeus has this moment where he's, he wants to see Jesus, and he climbs a tree, and Jesus stops and invites himself over for dinner, and Zacchaeus throws a big feast. And, and Zacchaeus has this moment before Jesus says anything where he's like, look, I know, I get it, I've, I've made some bad choices, I've enriched myself economically and at, at the expense and the harm of other people, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay back everything I've taken that's wrong. And any person that I've wronged and cheated, I'm going to pay them back four times, which is what the law, the Torah, requires. Whatever I've done it wrong, I'm going to do it right. You know what Jesus says when Zacchaeus makes this pronouncement? He sort of calls everybody together and he's like, listen, listen, y'all. Salvation has come to this house. Now, reading that, I was always like, wait a minute. He didn't say the sinner's prayer. He didn't walk down front on the fifteenth verse of "Just as I am." (laughs) He he didn't. All he said was, "I'm gonna give." I've been kind of a jerk. I'm gonna make sure I pay restitutions, uh, reparations, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that the people I've harmed are not harmed anymore. And Jesus, like the record scratch, Jesus, whoa, 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 that's salvation. Because Zacchaeus was in exile because he had too much money that he got in an unjust way. And for Zacchaeus to come home, even though home never left him, for him to be able to come home internally, he realized that I need to repent. And I can't repent with bags of ill-gotten gains all around me. I can repent by doing what is right and resetting the internal compass to north. Salvation for lots and lots of people will look like something like that, right? That they've, they're in sort of a self-imposed exile. They've maybe built up hatred toward other people. M- maybe they've built up all sorts of um, animosity, rage and anger, and coming home looks like being able to shed some of the stuff that's been hanging off of them. I often think about, what would, what would it mean for somebody who was a white supremacist to really experience salvation? Forgiveness would surely be a part of it, but it's not the only part, is it? There, there might be some things that have to happen. There might be some, uh, some movement toward others that needs to take place as well. And it also, I think, would involve healing, which is the third. Salvation is healing. Our English word salvation comes from a Latin word that actually means wholeness. Right? It's, it's akin to the word salve. And what does a salve do? It heals, right? It heals. Salvation is about healing, which is why if you go to someone who's been really deeply wounded and tell them, well, you need to be saved, and you need to be saved by asking forgiveness maybe they would say actually salvation for me would look like that person who harmed me asking for forgiveness actually i'm the one who's been wounded here what am i asking for forgiveness for forgiveness is not a one fit one size fits all experience of salvation it's about healing. Maybe it's about being healed from pain. When you think about the stories of Jesus, when he heals someone, um, and we could argue all day about whether those stories are literal or not literal, but I think the powerful thing is when Jesus provides healing, do you know what he always, almost, almost always, there's a social component of that healing. Have you noticed that? Like he heals somebody, and then he's like, everybody, you don't have to be afraid of this person, they're healed. Which I think is Jesus saying, you never should have been afraid of them to begin with. But salvation has this sort of healing experience for lots and lots of people. Maybe it's being healed from hurt. Maybe it's being healed. And what would that look like societally? What would that look like in the world? There are so many people in the world who are deeply hurting. And they're hurting because they're being led and the world's being run by people who are hurting. Hurting themselves, hurting others. What might salvation like healing as healing look like for us? What might it look like to be healed of the fractures device? I think it would also, which is to, to the fourth point, salvation actually often is a combination of experiences, right? right? Liberation will no doubt require some healing as well. Right? If we've wandered off, no, there's still a bit of liberation tied up in the return home. Salvation is all sorts of things, and it seems to me like whatever salvation might mean. It seems to me that it's a journey, not a moment. Anybody ever told that if you just go down front at church and pray the prayer that God would save you and you'd be good to go? How many of you did that and you weren't good to go? I think we had this image, I had this image for a long time that salvation was sort of like this experience where they back up a dump truck, like weep, 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 and then they just unload everything on you. And you're good seems to me like it's a journey. And it seems like we need different kinds of salvation at different times. And it seems like, yeah, maybe I experienced this kind of salvation in this specific moment. But maybe I also need a little bit of this over here. And maybe maybe it's actually some sort of mixture. And maybe it's an ongoing process. That's, that's the problem with using the word saved. And it's actually, um, Bible nerd, I spent like three hours researching how Paul uses the word saved in his genuine letters. None of it made the sermon. None of it. Because I realized you would just leave. Why would you sit through that? Like three hours of me talking about that. But here's the reality. When Paul writes about salvation in his letters, only like one time does he ever speak of it in the past tense. It's always an ongoing experience. It'd be better to say, am being saved. In the process of being saved is actually the correct language for that. And not only is it a journey, so don't give up on yourself, Don't be frustrated with yourself. Every single person in this room is in process. You know all the Christians who kind of have certainty and are mad at you because you don't? They're deeply uncertain and they're in process. That's the human experience. Growth, change, process. And you can't subvert it and you can't circumvent it. It is the only way humans develop. Process, Process, process. Now here's the good news. You do actually have to participate in it for it to work out. Right? Salvation is not just something that happens to you. It's an awareness that is cultivated and it's a choice you, it's a decision you walk into. I want to become a transformed human being. I I want to be different. And by me becoming a transformed human being, I want to work for a world that is transformed. I want to take Jesus' prayer super literally. On earth, as it is in heaven. I love what John Dominic Crossan says. He says, heaven's in fine shape, earth's where the problems are. On earth, as it is in heaven. Because salvation isn't something that happened to you. It's something that happens in and through you. I did not mean for that to rhyme in that way. But it's true. It's something that happens in your life that then explodes into the world to bring healing and wholeness and transformation everywhere else. Of course it begins personally. But it can't remain personal. It has to become political. It has to become societal. It has to spill outside of our lives and into the world. About the word saved, past tense, I love what my Angelou said. I'm always amazed when people walk up to me and say, I'm a Christian. I think, already? You got it? I'm working on it. Isn't that great? I'm a Christian. Already? That was fast. How'd you get there so quick? It's a process. It's a journey. It takes time. It, it's something that is cultivating and growing in you and hopefully spilling out from you into the world. And it's doing also, yes, salvation is beautiful. It's, you, it's about you. It's about me. It's about the world around us. And it also takes time. Let me give you these words from Marcus Borg as we close. I realize that... Lots of us in this room. Um, did anybody have trouble sleeping growing up, or even as an adult, because you were afraid that you weren't right, and if you died while you weren't right, it'd be bad? Anybody? I, I went. I went to. Um, I'm sleeping better now, but I went through a time when I went. I met with a sleep doctor because I was having so much trouble sleeping, and he asked what I took to go to sleep, and I told him like melatonin and prescription pill. And he's like, "How are you awake now?" He said, why why do you think you can't sleep? And I said, oh, I don't know. Probably because I was raised to believe that at any moment either Jesus would come back or I would die. And also I was raised in a tradition that taught me that I could lose my salvation like I lose my car keys. And so I was never safe. At any given moment, everything could be over and I would be in hell for all eternity. He said, that'll do it. (laughs) And so I realized that we come to this with our anxieties. We come to this with all sorts of hurt. We come to this... We've come to this being told again and again for years that you're depraved and you're broken and there's something wrong with you. Instead of you're a human being in process, you're growing and changing, you're maturing. We're a young species. Of course we are. Of course we're growing and changing. Of course we're getting it wrong sometimes. And we deeply need salvation. But for those of you who come to this with anxiety and pain, and the, even the word salvation sends a little bit of a shudder down your spine because of all the baggage and guilt and shame that have been heaped up and fear that have been heaped up around this. Listen to these words. And I know sometimes it's hard to believe these things when you hear them. But I, I'm going I'm to believe it for every single person in this room, except, probably except for me. So would you believe it for me? And I'll believe, sometimes it's easier to believe it for other people. Listen to these words. We are accepted by God, affirmed by God, beloved by God, just as we are. We are accepted by God, affirmed by God, beloved by God, just as we are. Now, I know you've got your list. I got my list of, well, but really, look at this. Look at this, look at this. Would God really, is that really true? Yes, you're accepted by God, affirmed by God, beloved by God, just as you are. Listen to this next part. Life is not about the anxious project of measuring up, but about living one's life grounded in God's grace. Life is not about the anxious, anxious project of measuring up, but about living one's life grounded in God's grace. Sometimes people threaten me with the afterlife still. I'm like, why aren't you worried about it? Because I don't know. I don't know what the afterlife is. You want to know what I think about it? Ask, you know, if I believe in it. Depends on the day. But here's what I do know. I believe in grace. And I believe that the same God that has held me up through my entire life is the same God will hold me up then. I think grace is true now. I think grace is true then. And I don't think God's grace to me or you depends on whether or not we get it all right or whether we even know about it. Oh, salvation's a free gift. What do I have to do to get it? Well, you gotta believe. That doesn't sound like a free gift. Grace is holding you right now. And grace, will, yes, when you cooperate with grace, beautiful things can happen. But grace has been holding you this whole time, friends. You are embraced by God. You're accepted by God. You're affirmed by God. You are beloved by God. That is the truest thing about you. So if somebody asks you, are you saved? Just ask them, how'd you get saved so fast? (laughs) Seems like it's a journey to me. Seems like a marathon, not a sprint. Maybe the right answer is to say, you know, I'm in process. I'm in process. Let's pray.